Jason's voice rose. You're leaving me? What do you mean you're leaving me? That's it. We're done. I'm telling you, it is over. Monica was now in a fury. Monica and Jason are at the lowest point ever. And that is our story for today. We're going to get into this whole topic of Catholic married sexual intimacy by means of a story. The story of Monica and Jason. I'm clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski. I'm your host and guide. This is episode 68 of the weekly podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. And it is titled, Improving Sexual Intimacy in Catholic Marriages. Interior Integration for Catholics is part of our online outreach, Souls and Hearts, at soulsandhearts.com, which is all about your human formation, all about shoring up your natural foundation for a solid Catholic spiritual life. So today... We are going to get into this with an example. I'm going to bring to you the example of a Catholic couple and all the caveats apply, right? I'm just going to invite you because some of this may be activating for some of you. There's going to be some aspects of this that could be triggering or could be activating for some of your parts. I'm going to invite you to pay attention to where you are in the zone of tolerance. Some of this may not be entirely appropriate for children, especially young children, Obviously, parents, listen to this before inviting your children to join you. I really want you to get into this through active listening. I really want you to get into this noticing what's going on inside of you as this story unfolds. Whether you're single, married, widowed, religious, whatever, there's going to be things in here that are going to tap into something in your story if you're open to it. So, As you listen, I really want you to be monitoring what's going on within your own system, what's happening within your own parts. And so without any further ado, it's story time with Dr. Peter. All right, so we're going to take it back in time. We're going to take it back in time to talk about Monica. Monica is the youngest of five children. She was born into a working class family in Youngstown, Ohio in 1972. Her father, Joe, was 44 years old when Monica was born. He was a steel worker at Youngstown Sheet and Tube. He worked with the open blast furnaces, well-liked at work, honest guy, very conventional, man of few words, but very fair. He believed you got ahead by hard work and by not complaining. And he was all about measuring up to his own father. His own father had done really well in the mills before he had retired and died shortly afterwards. So his upbringing, there were a lot of material goods. Those were good years for the steel industry when he was growing up. But his mother and father had struggled in an unhappy marriage. So this is, this is Joe. This is Monica's father. Monica's mother had been an administrative assistant. They called them secretaries back in those days. Then she became a stay-at-home mom because Joe raised, Joe made enough money for that. She was quiet. She was shy. She was retiring. Her kids were her life. Monica was raised Catholic, Catholic schools all the way. The sacraments were important. The faith was taken seriously in the home. Mass on Sundays, big celebrations for the baptisms, the first communions, the confirmations. Lots of big weddings in the family and extended family. But Monica and and her older siblings, right, because she was the youngest, they didn't know much about their parents' faith. 
Monica was the cutest of all the girls in the family. She had this blonde hair, pigtails, a winning smile. She was trusting. She was a friend to everyone, the whole family said. There was some joking about how her mother should enter her in a children's beauty pageant. And then some harder times came in because it was 1977. Monica was five years old. Black Monday hit Youngstown. Steel mills started to close down. Dad hung on. Joe... Joe hung on with some mop-up operations after some of the plants started closing for about two years. These were extremely stressful times for him. And Monica was five, six, seven years old at this time. Now, Uncle Jay was dad's younger brother. He was unmarried. He was a former infantryman in Vietnam. The family knew he had, quote, problems, end quote. But he was cool. He was hip. He was fun. He played with the kids when the family got together. He grew his hair long. He listened to music that Joe didn't really like that much. But he was family, right? And what and what really connected Monica with Uncle Jay was that he would have tea parties with her stuffed animals with her. And he pretended to sip tea. And one time, he even made real tea and, and served it out to all her stuffed animals in toy teacups. He was that kind of uncle, right? He paid attention to her. He listened to her stories. And he also gave her some physical affection, you know, would hug her from time to time, hold her hand when they went for a walk. Sometimes he'd do like sock puppet stuff with funny voices. Monica really liked the attention. And that was really important because her dad was kind of disconnected at this time, wrapped up in his own world. Lots of concerns about his job, lots of concerns about the future of the mill, the guys he was having to say goodbye to as the recession really struck the steel industry. Jay actually was Monica's most significant attachment figure. He lived locally, not far away, but he was also confusing to her. He brought up a lot of mixed emotions because the attention he gave her wasn't like the attention that others gave her. Remember, dad was distant, somewhat stressed, didn't seem to have as much time for the kids as when times were good earlier in the decade. Jay, though, Uncle Jay, he would say to her, you're so beautiful. You're such a precious girl. I wish I had a girl like you. So Uncle Jay stopped coming around for a month, and Monica kept asking where he was. It was kind of weird. You know, Mom and Dad didn't understand why he wouldn't come and visit. So at some point, Joe got a hold of his younger brother, Jay, and said, hey, you know, what's up? What's going on here? You know, you're never coming around anymore. And demanded that Jay come to Sunday dinner. So Jay came, there were words about why he had been sort of disconnected, and Jay admitted to Joe that he had a, quote, crush, end quote, on Monica. But he insisted, I never did anything to her, Joe. I never did anything to her. Joe flipped out. He dragged Jay before Monica and demanded to know from Monica if Jay had ever touched her. She didn't know what he was asking. She, this was beyond her comprehension. She said no. She said yes. She was confused. She wanted to give her dad whatever answer would cause his rage to diminish. That's where she was. And Joe came to believe that there had been some kind of inappropriate contact between Jay and Monica. So Jay was banished from the family, never heard from again, never brought up again. There was no way to discuss it. Monica didn't understand what had happened at all. She just got stonewalled when she attempted to talk with mom and dad about what had been going on. 
Monica had never seen such rage in her father. She had real serious concerns that her father was going to seriously injure Uncle Jay. Her mother was screaming at Joe to stop it. Don't hurt him. And so the whole situation, like I said, never discussed after that. There was no way for Monica to talk about this. So let's kind of review where we are with Monica's parts. Now remember, parts are like separate, discrete little personalities within us. They develop, they've got a whole range of emotions and feelings, thoughts, body sensations go with them, memories, worldviews, attitudes towards other people, and so forth. So Monica had these parts. She had a father-starved, exiled part, which really wanted relational connections with men, really wanted redemption. This part thought that it was sexually bad. This part felt like it was bad, and it wanted a man's approval. It wanted to be desired by a man. And as Monica grew up and went through puberty, puberty energized these normal unmet needs with a lot of sexual intensity. That often happens, right? So this part became energized that way, and it had already been in some way connected with Uncle Jay's sexual attraction, even though no overt sexual touch had happened. Monica also had a moral manager that was very concerned about right and wrong. This moral manager was afraid of the wrath of God because it really remembered her father's face and the violence that he threatened towards Uncle Jay. This part had a God image almost like her father. Remember, we talked about God images in episodes 23 to 29. And this part, this moral manager part, felt like physical contact and especially sexual contact was very dangerous and evil. It needed to be guarded against. Somehow this part knew that Uncle Jay had been punished for something sexual, something about bodies. And this moral manager shamed the father-starved exile within her for wanting the attention of men. It didn't want to experience any needs along those lines. And then a third part was this angry firefighter. This angry firefighter recognized that there was power in anger, right? Raging could command a situation. It connected her with her father's powerful rage, and it distracted from the neediness, the pain, and the grief of the exiles she had. It distracted from their needs, and it also rejected the constraints and the shaming of her moral manager part. Okay, so this part was able to rebel and act out against the moral manager part and give voice to that tension within. So as Monica grew up and started dating, the exiled part of her, that father-starved exile, really wanted the affection, nurturance, and love from a man. Again, remember, there was this emotional distance, this kind of emotional neglect from her father. This part believed that men were exciting but they were also dangerous and they were also necessary in order to redeem her. And this part actually wanted sex with a desperate yearning. The moral manager part, though, remember, was really afraid of God, really concerned about the wrath of God. So physical contact was dangerous. It was suspect. The exiled father part was seen as a temptress by this moral manager part. And and this needy exile was considered dangerous and needed to be guarded against. Then the firefighter raging part, that one would come in and end relationships. 
that was the one that would cause the breakups. And so the breakups that she had in high school and after she graduated from high school often ended in fights. Guys in high school and after high school thought that Monica was a tease, a flirt, because she would never even kiss them, right? Whenever there was any move toward any kind of physical affection or contact, which they sensed she wanted from that father-starved exile, the moral manager part would come in and would shut it down. And if things got too far or if a boy pushed boundaries or limits, then the angry, raging firefighter part would come in and blast them with the heat of the rage that would generally end the relationship. She had a scare at age 20 when she had more to drink than was wise at a party. And under the influence of that alcohol, her father-starved exile just basically took over. She had her first kiss, which was this drunken face-mashing with a guy that she barely knew. And this guy would have taken advantage of her had her friends not intervened and basically dragged her out of that dangerous situation. That incident at age 20 led Monica to really start thinking about some major changes in her life. Her moral manager part was horrified at what had happened and how much danger she had been in. So... She started to actually pray more earnestly, and she found that prayer was a way that she could actually connect with her father. Her father seemed more at peace when he was praying the rosary. They had prayed a rosary on Sunday evenings when she had been growing up. So she started to have more of of an interest in the spiritual life. She also went to visit the sisters at a local convent. Part of this was to get some help with something she had been struggling with and that she didn't want to bring up with any priest. And that was that that father-deprived exile was generating some sexual attractions to Jesus that would come up in her prayers. This drove her moral manager part nearly to despair. This moral manager part was accusing her of being a pervert, of not being holy enough, And finally, she brought herself in this desperation at age 20, age 21, to bring this up with some sisters that she trusted in in this local religious order. She was talking with the novice mistress and also with the mother prioress, and they reassured her about how this actually did not offend God. This was something that was not willed, not embraced. And the novice mistress especially was psychologically sophisticated enough to understand that this actually could have been generated by something within the natural realm. It did not mean that she was a pervert. It did not mean that she was uh, irredeemably bad. There was probably something going on here that really wasn't clearly understood. So that normalization by the novice mistress really helped Monica to begin to accept that sometimes that happened. The novice mistress encouraged her to bring that in prayer to God, to Christ, and offer it to him, which was a new thought because the moral manager part had really just wanted to bury that thing and had been moving away from prayer. Sometimes that happens. These intrusive sexual imagery comes up and it can lead people to not want to engage, to avoid it, right? Again, for fear that for fear of a negative reaction from Christ our Lord. 
under the guidance of the novice mistress, even though she wasn't seriously considering a vocation to the religious life, she began to build a plan of life. She began to have daily prayer. She was going to Mass on Sundays. She began a little bit of spiritual reading and you know, began to settle in, and things began to settle down for her. She, she entered into a period of relative stability around age 22, 23 years old. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Jason. Let's go back and understand where, is he, where he was at. So Jason was the older of two brothers. He wasn't raised in any religious tradition originally. His father had worked in road construction, but it had been paralyzed when Jason was 10. He was hit by a car with an unattentive driver on a work zone on a highway. And this really devastated Jason's mother, who was kind of fragile anyway, who relied heavily on her husband. Mom was physically close with Jason, but not really emotionally close, partly because she was so self-absorbed so and somewhat emotionally constricted. Her manager parts were trying to hold things together, trying to keep the household functioning. However, she did provide some hugs and kisses to, to Jason, would hold him and provide some physical affection. Jason learned that he really needed to take care of his mother. He really developed this white knight manager part that was all about helping women who were in distress. It was all about taking care of others. Jason grew up, he had a lot of sexual experiences in high school and after high school. He had joined the Coast Guard because he wanted adventure, he wanted a challenge, he wanted a sense of danger. And then after that, after four years in the Coast Guard, he had gone on to a culinary academy to be a chef. However, one night there was there was a serious kitchen fire. It was a freak accident involving the spilling of oil on him. He actually sustained some serious third-degree burns and had to spend some significant time in rehabilitation. He actually started to consider how he might have died. He became more serious, and he had to receive the care of others. There was this long-term rehab nurse, Julie, who cared for him, who he was attracted to romantically, but she held really good boundaries with him. She was engaged to another guy. She was warm but professional to him, and he respected, and Jason respected her for it. She wore a cross around her neck, and while she didn't talk a lot overtly about Christianity, that really struck Jason as being significant. Because he was laid up with little to do and because his mobility was really hampered, he watched a lot of television, watched some EWTN, he made fun of Mother Angelica, but actually some of it started to sink in over time. Like He became more interested in spiritual themes. He took a lower demand job, dropped out of the culinary academy, took a lower demand job at a family restaurant as he continued to recover. And he started reading some philosophy, started reading some spiritual works that were brought to him by an old high school classmate. He also got involved in some reading and debating about Christianity on the internet, discovered C.S. Lewis, attended a non-denominational church occasionally, again brought there by his, his former evangelical classmate, and he started to stabilize as well. Jason and 
Monica met when she was doing some waitressing on weekends at the restaurant that he worked at. She had picked up that waitressing job just for the weekends. During the week, she worked as, as this receptionist at a medical office. She had some attraction to Jason, but he knew that he, he wasn't really marriageable. Monica reminded Jason of the nurse, Julie. And again, he sensed that she was not going to be receptive to his seductive moves. Remember, he had, he had a firefighting part that would attempt to seduce women in order to try to get distraction from some of his deeper underlying needs, deep needs for affection, nurturance, and love. And so the two of them developed a relationship that actually spanned years. Eventually, he became more interested in the Catholic faith, converted to Catholicism. They continued to work at the restaurant together. Finally, one of the other waiters suggested that they might consider dating. Both of them obviously had thought about it. They began to, to date after a while. It seemed like, you know, yeah, it might be a good idea to get married. Because of Monica's moral manager part, but also just the sense that really this wouldn't be a good thing to be having sex before marriage, they actually waited until they were married. This was, again, something that had really let Jason know that Monica was different than the other girls he had dated, increased his respect for her, and made her much more attractive in his eyes. When they were married, though, they discovered early on that because of the inner conflict among Monica's parts, she was not particularly sexually responsive to Jason. She didn't experience orgasm. And this was really bothersome to Jason. This had never happened before in his sexual, quote, conquests, end quote, of other women. All the other women had been much more sexually responsive to him. This activated Jason's unloved exile. And a sense of shame, a sense of inadequacy started to come in as there were questions about why he wasn't good enough for Monica. It also started to bring up some wishing inside this exile that he had married Julie, the nurse, even though that that wasn't really an option for him. There was this fantasy that he really had made the wrong choice. He really should be married to Julie. Monica, for her part, felt an intense guilt in her moral manager part that she was not more sexually responsive. This created a, a lot of conflict within her. Her father-starved exile was not getting its needs met in the way that it had hoped by having sexual intimacy with her husband, Jason. This turned out to be a great disappointment that he was not one who could redeem her sexually. Occasionally, when that, when that exile started to really act up, there would be this anger and this rejection that would come up. It was absolutely baffling to Jason because he didn't really have an, a way to understand that firefighting part that would bring in all that anger in a way that would be protective for Monica. And so when they were six years into the marriage with three children, there came a night when Monica's moral manager 
who was still questioning whether she should have become a religious. This is one of the things that had come up here. This was not a subtle question for that moral managing part of Monica. There's still a doubt. Maybe I should have joined the nuns, right? Even though they hadn't been particularly encouraging of that vocation, they weren't seeing it. The novice mistress was not sort of sensing that Monica had a religious vocation. It still believed that Religious life would have saved her from a lot of suffering within the marriage and really had questions about whether she had, quote, screwed up, end quote, her vocational decision making. And so one night, that angry firefighter and Monica came up and started that conversation, right? That one that we let off with where she was yelling at Jason and Jason was baffled and defensive and coming back at her. And so there was this real danger of separation. The two didn't talk for a couple of days. And Jason came to a turning point there. He realized that he was going to have to radically change in this relationship, regardless of what Monica did. This was the discovery, right? This was when Jason decides that he's really got to work on himself. He had converted to Catholicism. But there were a number of things that were contributing to the agitation within Monica's system. He still used pornography occasionally. Monica knew about that, sometimes discovered it. She had also picked up a couple of texts on his phone from a waitress at the restaurant that was somewhat flirty with him. He needed to engage in reality. He needed to accept that Monica might actually leave him. He had to give up the what-ifs about to Julie, right? He decided to confront, like, what was he really missing with that? He understood that he needed help, All right? There was a softening of his white knight manager part. That part was so externally focused on Monica's problems, or at least perceived problems, that it wasn't allowing him to really recognize the things that he needed to work on. And so with some humility, he joined a men's group at the parish. He began to talk about his use of pornography and the boundaries around his relationships with this, this his relationship with this other waitress. He got some really great feedback from the guys in the, in the group, became real with them. They prayed for him. He prayed for them. He also began to address inside of himself some of the real issues he had going back to his mother. He was asking questions of himself. He was also beginning to understand something about his own needs. He began reading the scripture. He began reading the catechism. It began hanging together for him in better and better ways. He began focusing on being small, picked up the, uh, the works of St. Faustina about mercy, and he also began praying for his wife, really trying to understand who she was, not who he thought she was, and not focusing on who he thought she should be in order to meet his needs, but really working on loving his wife regardless of whatever her response was to him. Monica decided that she had to refocus on her commitment. She recognized that she had some mood swing issues, right, when this firefighter part would come up. She recognized that she had issues in human formation. She went back to her former employer. There was a psychologist on that staff. He recommended a counselor 
that could do some EMDR with her. Brought in some work by Sandra Polson into that therapy where she began working with her parts. And that was incredibly helpful to her just to understand that she had these different parts. And they got activated in ways that were predictable. And that there were reasons why she felt the way she did. These parts didn't have the whole story. They were confused about certain issues. They didn't see everything clearly. But they weren't bad. Some of them had burdens. Those burdens were not who the parts really were. She also began to work with her sense of trauma, the grief, the loss of the relationship with Uncle Jay, began to sort through that more clearly, had some conversations with her older siblings who knew more of the story, and two of them were willing to talk with her about what they knew, what they had heard, because they had a more mature understanding of what had happened at the time. She actually was able to work through the losing of her father to dementia. That loss was gradual. And she entered in to this deeper spiritual formation as well. She really continued to get into a deeper relationship with our Lord. She had worked through a lot of those sexual intrusive thoughts. Sometimes they would come back, but she began to recognize that there were predictable times when that happened. And she understood that that was more psychological than it was spiritual. She continued to have the support of the sisters in the religious community that she was near. She began to also reach out to Our Lady to entrust herself in a special way to her maternal care. She made use of the sacraments. Jason would come with her. And as she worked through some of this sexual stuff around what her father-deprived exile, the things that that exile was driving, there were some periods where she and Jason agreed to some sexual abstinence in order to give her some space to work through these things. That offered them an opportunity to work on some physical intimacy that didn't result in sexual union. It's really, really important. And so... What they found as they worked through this, as they treated each other with this dignity and this respect, you know, what was happening essentially was that the different elements of the Catholic canopy marriage bed were coming together, right? There was this belief in God's providence, first of all. That's the floor, right? There was a serious taking of responsibility for their own human formation. Jason, for his human formation, that was one leg of the bed. And Monica, for her human formation, that was another leg of the bed. They began to understand their deep attachment needs and their deep integrity needs that had gone unmet. And not because they had the worst histories that ever existed in the world, but because everyone has some kind of needs that weren't getting met. And that's just so common in our human life. It doesn't have to be tremendous complex trauma all the time for that to be operative, right? So they began to deal with that. And they actually did have the fourth leg as well because of the parts work that Monica was doing in her EMDR therapy. So eventually their sexual intimacy got better, but it got better as a function of all the other things getting better within the relationship. 
Monica's commitment to the relationship that she started with, Jason's commitment to his human formation and to accepting without necessarily endorsing the reality of what was going on in the relationship and who Monica really was, not just who his parts wanted her to be in order to sustain the hope that she would meet his needs. They looked at this not just from a spiritual perspective, but from a natural perspective, a human formation perspective. Eventually, because so much work had been done, Monica was able to achieve orgasm in the sexual experience, in the sexual union with Jason. And it was when the pressure was off for her to be able to do that. She was able to give herself more freely in the relationship. Jason was able to look at sexual intimacy as a gift to his spouse, to his wife, that just eased up so many things because the needs that Jason's parts and that Monica's parts were layering onto the sexual relationship, that had been eased, right? So there was a space for there to be some exploration, some understanding and some communication about the sexual intimacy. Having kids also really helped them both because they could learn from the wonder and the awe that the children had. And also the children taught both Monica and Jason, but especially Monica, about how to play, about how to be small, how to be young. It was something that was really important for both of them to connect to was what it's like to be a child of God. They could actually imitate with some of what was going on between their children in the relationship with their children. They could bring that into their relationship with God, remembering that our Lord said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God is made up of such as these. So their sexual intimacy, their sexual relationship got better, not because they focused primarily on the eros, the sexual passion, the bed sheet, right? The fitted sheet in our Catholic canopied marriage bed metaphor, but because they focused on the critical things that went with the rest of the bed, that foundation, right? Which is a deep abiding belief in God's providence. Those four legs, right? Her human formation, his human formation, an understanding of the deep integrity needs and the deep attachment needs and understanding things in terms of parts, right? That IFS informed work that we talk about. And then the commitment to each other, which is the frame of the bed. They worked on some greater empathy toward each other, right? Which is the mattress, right? We've got the understanding, the acceptance of where each other was and where each spouse was his self or herself, right? Jason, where he was, Monica, where she was, them accepting themselves as well, which are which is the pillows in our Catholic canopied marriage bed and uh, metaphor. So you can see how this starts to all hang together. Now I'm going to just invite you to notice what came up for you. Which parts of this story may have resonated with you? What did you really connect with? Because those can be some important insights 
for what you might need to be working on in your human formation. And that's what the premium podcast is going to be about. The premium podcast for RCC members is all about what came up for you as you listened to this episode. We're going to do some experiential exercises around that. Right? I'm going to encourage people, get on the waiting list. If you love this podcast, get on the waiting list, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. I will also send you that particular premium podcast. So if you get on that by Thursday, May 20th, on the in the afternoon of Thursday, May 20th, I'm going to send out an email. It's going to have that link. It's also going to have a lot more information about the reopening of the resilient Catholics community because we all need help. We all need structure. We all need support, right? You saw in the story how Monica and how Jason were able to do that, right? Through the accessing the resources. They did not do that by themselves, right? And again, that's a story that I made up. That's not, that's not a, an actual story. That's, that's not my clients or anything like that, but it's a realistic story. People make progress when they work on these things. And and in order to do that, we need structure, we need support. And you can get that through the Resilient Catholics community. Mark your calendars for Tuesday, May 25th from 7.30 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to have a meeting for everybody that's on the waiting list about the Resilient Catholics community reopening. There'll be lots of time for question and answers. That meeting will also be on our landing page. We're going to invite you to register for it. We're going to get that out to you in the email that we'll send out on May 20th for those that are on the waiting list. So with that, I'm going to thank you for tuning in again. Please keep me in your prayers. Keep Know that I also pray for all the listeners. And with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.